Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Elena Konis is joining us today, April 20th, 2020, to talk about the coronavirus epidemic. Elena is Associate Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches in the Graduate School of Journalism, the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society, and the Program in Media Studies. Thank you for joining us, Elena. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You've done a lot of work in the history of medicine, public health, and infectious disease, especially for your book, Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization. Can you share with us some of your perspective on the contemporary coronavirus outbreak? Sure. So a lot of my perspective comes from both the work I've done as a historian and the teaching that I do as an academic. And as you mentioned, a lot of my work as a historian has focused on the history, particularly the U.S. history of vaccines, vaccine development, vaccine acceptance, and the trajectory of vaccine-preventable diseases once they become such. So as somebody with that particular perspective, I've been picking up on a couple of things that I've noticed in coronavirus reporting and our current discourse around the virus and the disease associated with it. One thing is that really early on in our kind of acknowledgement of the severity of this epidemic and pandemic, we started talking about the promise and potential of a vaccine and research into a vaccine for this disease and how the vaccine that doesn't currently exist, is our sort of best hope for getting out of the situation that we're in. In particular, I've noticed that President Trump and Vice President Pence have made repeated reference to the vaccine that, in their words, should be available within 12 to 18 months. I've also picked up on the fact that we are looking to the past a lot as some sort of source of information or source of perspective on our current experience with this particular disease. And we're looking to the past and how we dealt with diseases, everything from yellow fever to cholera to the 1918 flu to polio. And I think it's so interesting how these references to the past are so, I mean, this is not surprising to somebody who works as a historian, but they're so fungible. We kind of use the past the way we want to use it. We look back and we see in it what we are inclined to see. It's our, our sort of Rorschach test as a society. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is what we see when we look back to the polio era. I wanted to talk about both of those things, but maybe first it might be more helpful for me to talk about what comes to mind when I hear these promises about a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. As I mentioned, we've been hearing this for many weeks now, and it is coupled with reports about the companies that are working on these vaccines, how well positioned they are to produce an effective product, how well positioned they are to produce an effective product quickly. And there's been some discussion about the complications that lie ahead, no matter how effective current research efforts are. As a vaccination historian, I look back and I think about a number of the times that we've been here before in recent decades, how when we were dealing with Zika as a new infection here, there was some conversation about a vaccine. 
And we ended up managing that disease with other control measures, how when Ebola made it within our borders a handful of years ago, we also suddenly started hearing a lot about vaccine development and vaccine research is continuing for sure, but we still don't have a good, effective, widely used vaccine for that disease either. And you can kind of keep marching back in time, West Nile virus, HIV, etc. A lot of the vaccines that we routinely use today are largely administered to children, I'm going to say with the exception of the flu vaccine, of course, and a a number of vaccines for adults. But we also have a vaccination infrastructure that, because of our reliance on the vaccination of children, focuses on vaccinating children against diseases that had been around for a very, very long time before we came up with their vaccines. So I see a big difference between how we talk about the potential or promise or our ability to come up with a new vaccine today and how we came up with many of the widely used vaccines that we are currently using, whether they are the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the DPT vaccine, even the polio vaccines, all of which we've been using for decades and decades. So I guess the main takeaway from all of this for me is that we keep talking with such great hope and in a way confidence about our ability to manage coronavirus and COVID-19 with the development of new vaccines. But we don't have a lot of good historical examples of when we've been able to do that. Measles was endemic and epidemic in the US for centuries before we had an effective vaccine against it. Polio is often invoked as an example of how we did come up with an effective vaccine and came up with one quickly. But if you look a little bit more closely at the history of that disease, its spread in the U.S. and the development of its vaccine, it's a much more complicated story. I think to change directions or pivot for a moment and talk about polio, I think it's a helpful example for thinking about how we might put our current vaccine hopes and expectations in perspective. It's also a good case study, I think, for understanding how we are currently using history to our advantage. I've seen a number of news reports recently invoking the era of polio in a variety of different ways. Some of them look back and say, well, you know, the polio era in the U.S., in particular in the 1940s and 50s, was a time when we were forced to let an infectious disease shut down society. And in the polio days of the 1940s and 50s, we saw whole towns like shutter their movie theaters and close off their parks and close the swimming pools and cancel festivals and families kept children home and so on and so forth. It was not to the same scale or degree that we're seeing today at all, but I see a lot of comparisons to that time. I also see the polio era, so to speak, being invoked as a story that shows us again that in the past we dealt with an incredibly terrifying disease and we all put all of our effort into fighting it. And in part, one of the things that we did was channel the resources, the institutional knowledge, and all of the institutional support that it took to develop an effective polio vaccine. And if we look more closely again at that history, we see that actually we finally got the first effective polio vaccine in 1955. The first polio epidemic in the US, I believe, was 1894. 
the epidemics began to get worse in the 1910s, and they got much worse by the 1940s and 50s. Our big push to develop a polio vaccine began in the 1940s. And so it's important to look back at that time, and we can certainly acknowledge, yes, we did manage to marshal the best scientific resources to develop an effective vaccine, but it took years, the better part of more than a decade. And not only that, but the development of that vaccine, while it was incredibly welcome and the nation was certainly jubilant and excited about the vaccine and eager to rush out and get it. And I expect that something similar would happen today if we came up with an effective vaccine against coronavirus within a relatively short time frame. But what we miss when we focus on the sort of national enthusiasm for that vaccine is that there were a number of complications that we dealt with. One was that we had a terrific vaccine that was approved, I believe it was within hours of the clinical trial results being announced. So incredibly fast approval. And it makes me think a lot today about how Dr. Burks keeps saying that she's seeing regulatory barriers today move out of the way quicker than she ever has in her career. And I look back to that approval of the first polio vaccine, which Jonas Salk often gets credit for and see also an incredibly hasty approval. In order to manufacture that vaccine on a scale to make it widely accessible, a number of companies were brought into the fold, given the protocol for manufacture, and not all of them were prepared to manufacture it well. And so very, very quickly, we saw the infamous Cutter incident took hold in which a faulty batch of vaccine came out of a manufacturer, actually right here in Berkeley, California, where I am now. Ultimately, more than 200 cases of paralytic polio were traced to that vaccine and about a dozen deaths. That problem, quote unquote, is kind of an understatement to call it a problem, but that problem was eventually solved, but it was coupled with a distribution problem. The fact that despite marshalling all of our manufacturing resources to the best of our ability, we still had people desperate for the vaccine. We had companies supposedly promising their shareholders that they would get the vaccine first. We had states struggling to come up with protocols to fairly distribute the vaccine. And ultimately, we had state governors pressing on President Eisenhower to please step in and ensure that the vaccine would be available to every last American and that it wouldn't go, for instance, just to the wealthy or just to the privileged. Eisenhower was pretty reluctant to assume that role, but with much pressing, he finally did. One of the other things that I see when I look back at the polio era, another thing that I believe we missed is today we look back and we see in retrospect a country that welcomed that vaccine and got readily, eagerly vaccinated over the next several years. But we also saw vaccine uptake start to decline after a handful of years. And by the late 1950s and early 60s, a number of states were experimenting with introducing laws to make that vaccine mandatory. And one thing which we tend not to pay much attention to now is how those laws actually began to elicit and kind of draw out some anti-vaccine sentiment. 
And in particular, I've been looking at a lot at this history in California recently because California was one of the first states to make the polio vaccine mandatory. And as state lawmakers attempted to do so, they faced enormous pressure to make sure that there was a loophole in other words, an exemption in that law. And initially, the lawmakers made an exemption for people with certain religious beliefs, but they faced tremendous pressure from naturopaths and advocates of other alternative healing approaches to strike the word religious from the bill and make it a law that, quote unquote, required the polio vaccine for anyone except for those where the vaccine was contrary to their quote-unquote beliefs. And this quote-unquote, we call it now, personal belief exemption then was applied to pretty much every other vaccine that was added to California's vaccination law until that exemption was revoked in 2015. This is all a very long way of saying that I think we tend to forget that we had a pretty complicated experience with that vaccine after the first few years, and it posed problems for manufacturers, it posed serious distribution problems, and the public apathy may be too strong of a word, but the kind of first inklings of public apathy led to drop off in use, which then triggered a stronger use of law, which then elicited more anti-vaccination sentiment coming out than we had seen in decades up to then. It's a complicated story. And to me, again, it's an important one for realizing when we look to the past for answers about how to understand our present, we really need to think a little bit more deeply about how complicated that past was. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Jessica Linker, a program coordinator at the Consortium. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.